Special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. Hi, I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And I'm Charles Epting of H.R. Harmer in New York City. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. So Charles, I'm super excited about our guest today. He is a two-time Champion of Champions winner, one of the most uh, esteemed collectors in the hobby. We're speaking to Gordon Eubanks today, um, who is uh, an incredible collector, but more than that, I think just an incredible asset for the hobby. Um, Because, yeah, you could rattle off all of his... uh, Actually, he hasn't won that many competitions um, because as soon as he shows something, it wins. (laughs) <laughs> and then he can't show it again. So he hasn't exhibited as much as mo- most people work for years and years and years yeah. to try to get that, uh, you know, coveted uh, grand award. And mm-hmm. Gordon just kind of once or twice. Yeah. And then it's it. so, in, I'll take that. Ex- <laughs> basically, um, you know, uh, when you've got a collection like his, it's it's uh, it's hard to vote for anybody else, I would say. But more than that, I got to know Gordon through his involvement with the U.S. Philatelic Classic Society. Uh, who were my sponsor for uh, my fellowship with the APS. It was the Classic Society. So I, I got very involved in that society um, and, and got to know these collectors who were um, just leagues and leagues above where I was at or still am at. Um, but Gordon is one of the guys I got to know because he's so involved in that society. He's the Bors chairman for Westpac. So he's my point of contact when when dealing with Westpac's booths and everything. So he's not just a collector who then um, you know, shuns the rest of the hobby. He's a collector who really gives back and is involved and um, is just, I, I think he's just a fantastic asset for the hobby. I think we could use a lot more people like Gordon and the hobby would be, uh, you know, a lot, not that it's not a great place, but right. like the more of him we have, the better. Right. A, a well-spoken proponent of the hobby, just a, a staunch supporter of anything philatelic. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, excited to uh speak to him i'm, I'm so used to see, he's since about a lot of people but he i'm so used to seeing him at shows like you end up yeah. seeing gordon every month or two whether it's in florida or chicago or san francisco that mm-hmm. haven't gone this long without seeing these familiar faces uh you know cheryl a couple weeks ago it's yeah. always nice to catch up with them even if via zoom yeah yeah exactly well, let's I'm bring a, him in uh, yeah hello gordon hi thanks for um Thanks for taking the time to to meet with us. Yeah, no problem. How are things going uh, in 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 quarantine for you? Have you had much time to focus on uh, on collecting? Probably all I do. <laughs> <laughs> We're really lucky because in our whole zip code there have been ten cases. Wow! And actually, the we're right next to Carmel, and that's even better. Hmm considering the population so it's pretty what's the population for that i think it's like four thousand in our unincorporated area and maybe 16 15,000 i don't know what carmel is but that's pretty good but uh on the other hand if you go to the other side of the county you get huge numbers of cases salinas and central valley and or the uh, salinas valley so Anyway, we're lucky. Yeah. Just boring. <laughs> I don't know if there'll be another stamp show for for months. Yeah. Um, I don't know what you you guys think. 
Um, Dana said they're trying to do the March Chicago ASDA show, um, but they have a limit of 50 people in a room at one time. So it looks like they're going to have to cancel that. Um, mm. I, I would be shocked if anything happens before summer. We're still holding on with Westpex for April, late April. But it depends to some extent on how the vaccine goes, I mm -hmm. think and whether people get their act together here and wear masks and, and social distance. I mean, this is not rocket science. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it'll, it'll be, it was interesting that St. Louis seemed to be a step in the right direction, I suppose. And, uh, and from there, it's, it's been sort of a, a stalemate. Mm. Well, they had a show in Houston last week, or this weekend, I guess, whatever day it is now. Um, Steve Taylor was there. Labor and Harris was there. Um, Steve's a big advocate. You know, he flies from London. I don't know if you know yeah. Steve, but I think everyone probably knows him. But we're going to try to do Westpex, but I'm thinking we might be smart to move it into May if we can. So we'll see. Yeah, fingers crossed. It, it didn't need to be this. Uh, it didn't need to be this this difficult. Yeah, if everybody had just. It, it didn't need to be this difficult. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gordon, to kick things off, can you talk a little bit about uh, your your entry into the hobby? Because I'm sure a lot of people know you now as um, uh, you know as a, a, a CFC winner and a, a you know world renowned collector, but. How did you get your start? What are you, what was your sort of um, entry point into the hobby? Did you start as a young kid? Did it take you later in life to um, discover Flatley? What's your own sort of personal journey? Well, um, like a lot of people, I started as a kid. My uh, mother was a collector as a kid. And uh, the family rumor has it that my grandfather was a quite a collector. They lived in China for 10 years, uh, back when the river boats were going up and down and suppressing the Chinese. Um, so they were in a little place called Tinsin, and the, the rumor is he had the world's greatest collection of Chinese stamps. I'm sure in those times you could buy some pretty amazing stuff. However, there's not a single record of this. So I, he may have had a collection. I doubt it was a <laughs> world-famous collection. Um, but anyway, uh, so my mother was a collector and I started as a kid, maybe in fourth grade, we moved to England when I, before I started fourth grade and my father was covering all of Europe for a technology company. And, um, so I got a lot of foreign stamps. I'd soak them off, put them in an album pretty, you know, and then, my brother also collected and we would collect us in our later teens but i didn't do much until then the early 90s was the next time i really then i started um i was working for a software company and we um we had a product and it turned out that this dealer used this piece of software and so I started working with, you know, Alan Katz. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I started working with Alan and his wife. They, they would actually come by the house sometimes on the way to West Pex and spend a day or two. And and so I really started buying. And then in Washington, in the show in Washington, I had five frames or four frames, some number of frames of classic U.S., which sort of surprised people. There's some interesting pieces in that collection. And then I kind of got a lot more involved. That was the year uh, Bill Gross showed his U.S. classics, not his 47s, but his U.S. classics. And um, one, uh, Steve Walski, I think, had the best, let me say, had a pretty good exhibit also. Charles Shreve did, you know, really ran the gross effort. And Charles is amazing. I think he had a reception for the judges at the NPM or something that year. Um, but anyway, that's how I, I really got started. And when it came time for you to specialize in something, I, you know, at least my impression is that uh, going with, um, classic us and specifically the 47s and 51s is a very daunting task especially when you know there's uh bill gross is out there and and, and people like joseph hackney collecting did, did that intimidate you at all did you uh you know shy away from this challenge or did you um you know did, did that drive you even even further into uh making a decision to specialize in uh again such a such a daunting field of of philately um I don't think I really was cognizant of that. I don't. I don't think I was really focused on the fact that I knew Bill Gross and Hackney, and there were others who were paying, you know, huge amounts of money. Alan would find really great stuff. So a couple of things happened, but I wasn't thinking of being an exhibitor. I was just collecting. So f- for a while, I've gone from as a kid the the worldwide stuff to focus just on the u.s i had an album i put tried to fill the album i had a used album and a mint album and the usual stuff and then when i met alan who was a smart guy he saw the fact that the lower priced u.s wasn't a very good business for him so he got me focused on better stuff and he, he sold me my first cover that I ever owned um, a 47 cover, I think from the, the BB correspondence. And um, so I began to focus on, on this and it was all in a safe. And he convinced me that I should do more than just put it in a safe, that I should organize it. Um, and uh, at that point I was collecting all the classics through the 69s. And I kept collecting the 69s for some time. But the biggest thing that happened, it was extremely lucky, beyond lucky, was that Alan had bought the um, Waterbury collection from this one of the, the guy that wrote the book on it. He had passed away. He bought it from his w- widow. And he didn't want to keep this 20K asset in his, his safe so he sold it to me. And and that was great because now I had a, I wish I had that collection of waterberries today because they're, they're <laughs> expensive candles are a lot more valuable. 
but at the same time, uh, his name is going to escape me. The guy that lived on Long Island, the lawyer who passed away, he'd been a, a lawyer in the, uh, trials in Germany after World War II. He'd, he'd worked in the, there. He, that's why he had, he put together an amazing German states collection. Boker. John John Boker. So Boker decided he wanted to collect fancy cancels. And so he offered to buy it. And I I wasn't that interested. I wasn't looking to, to sell stuff, but he kept piling stuff up. I mean, and finally, Alan called and said, you know, you can do what you want, but what he's offering is worth 10 times what these are. <laughs> and so but basically, Boker gave me every one of his 1851s through 1861, all of them, mm-hmm. and trade for this. And again, that was so lucky. It, it, it contained things like the um, strip of three with the number five, the 99R2, on and on and on in the inperf. And then, so I decided at that point to focus on the inperf 51s and the 49s. I didn't get any 49s from Boker because he'd already sold them all to Gross. Otherwise, he probably would have thrown all those in too. He's a funny guy. He just wanted this stuff. I talked to him once. I was on a and well, I was changing trains on Long Island, and I did, don't do a lot of train travel. And so I was at on a payphone. It was the only time I ever talked to him for two minutes. And he said, "You're going to regret it if you turn this down. I'm I'm through negotiating." Yeah, true story. So uh, fortunately, I used some common sense. So that was an incredible opportunity. Uh, some, and then Alan sold all the perforated stuff. And I kept all the inperf that came from that and continued to buy inperf 47s and 51s um, and 69s. And that's what was shown at Washington. I still have the scans of the pages. In those days, though, you didn't have scanners. So I had to go to some copy center. (laughs) Well, first, they, they didn't really, you know, they they kept pushing Alan off. We had to beg to, to get some frames. I mean, these were the Newberry covers. The I mean, the yeah. block of six of the ninety cent, the imperf block. I mean, the the unused block of the ninety cent uh, sixty nine. There's some amazing stuff there. So I went down to the copy center, put them on the thing, copied them at the you know these things, and and then finally. Uh, did the exhibit and um so anyway that's probably more than you needed but that's how i I got into it i just kept kept adding i got to know scott treppel pretty well he was helpful matter of fact they came out he and his then girl new girlfriend came out for thanksgiving and we got to know uh, katie who's awesome She's great. She's a lot of fun. So anyway, uh, Scott Scott has been very helpful, and Alan was extremely helpful. Charles, all these people, even even Pillar, Stanley, <laughs> a lot of help. So, how many years did you exhibit for before you won the first uh, Champion of Champions? Not long. 
<laughs> I, I think that of all the exhibiting, I've I haven't exhibited that much because they both won the grand the second time they were showing each of the two exhibits, and then for the CSC, I exhibited and didn't win. I won. I didn't win and I won. I think it was like I was in four CFCs. I mean, I was very lucky. I was the right place at the right time. And it, it was a good, good collection. I mean, I think in those, back then more than now, judging favored the classics in the U.S. Um, but then I've been on a streak of losing. I mean, I lost in Stockholm to Dan Dan his amazing exhibit on Confederate one. Um, and then I lost in uh, Prague to uh, Hackney. He's a great guy. I don't know. Do you know him? Have you met, have you ever hung I've, out? I've with met him? Joseph a couple of times, uh, mainly at European shows. And he's a, he's a riot. He's, he's a piece he, of work. He's one of a kind. <laughs> so anyway, there, that's how I kind of, but I started exhibiting, um, I think after the first time, the only time I lost to a U.S. collector was in, in the U.S. was to Mark Schwartz when he won in St. Louis um, with his uh, some collection. It wasn't Boston, it was the other Massachusetts collection. Something... Something I think is interesting, there's a lot of collectors who like to keep a low profile. They exhibit, they buy, they, you know, they're out there. Um, but, but not everyone becomes that actively involved in the hobby. You, uh, I got to know you first through your involvement in the Classic Society. Um, you have West Pecs uh, th that, you, um, uh, that you run. Uh, you're the Borst chairman for Westpex. Is that your? Yeah, I don't run Westpex. You, 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 you're Borst very, chairman. Invo very involved in. You're, you're my. There's an amazing group of people. <laughs> Westpex has got the probably the largest show committee, and and they really have pe people do a lot of work. I just deal with the dealers, which I really enjoy. This is a tough time for dealers right mm. now with the pandemic. What was it that inspired you to become involved in the social and organized side of philately as well? Because, again, you, you could have just collected and exhibited one CFC and, and you know, again, kept a low profile like many people do. But, but you're you're very much plugged in. Um, you know, what, what what led you to that? Well, one, I really like the people. I have, we have a lot of really good friends who are in the hobby. Um, and. They're just amazingly fun. I mean, my wife, I'm sure, would prefer to hang out with Ian and Stefan than with me. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just talked to him about appearing on an episode. He's going to join us in a week or two. <laughs> now, that'll be a much more interesting episode. <laughs> We've done a, a Zoom call with him from his hot tub in, uh, <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah, w but there are a lot of great people in the hobby and they're fun to hang out with. And, um, I enjoy that a lot. And, uh, I think that's really the driving force. And, you know, Wade has been very, uh, aggressive in getting me involved in a lot of stuff as he has done with dozens of other people for the hobby. Um, and, 
I like the travel. I, I like the European shows. I mean, they're really. Yeah. I got to go speak in, in London one time. I mean, that was amazing. The Collectors Club, the London Club. I mean, that, it's just unbelievable. The hobby is a great excuse to get us out of the house and out of the office for things like that. <laughs> it really is. Um, and there's groups now that get together on Zoom and chat just periodically. Mostly now I've been spending time with Prexies and with World War II airmail in the southern Atlantic. Most, a lot of people don't know that, but I have a, a whole Prexy exhibit that I have put together during the pandemic. What are the similarities and differences if you were to compare the imperfect U.S. issues with the Prexies? I'm sure there's, uh, you know, there, there's things in the Prexy era that are just as rare and just as hard to come by, but a tiny fraction of the cost. But how does it stack up for you? Do you find yourself applying a lot of the same methodologies and philosophies to collecting uh, these issues that are separated by almost 100 years? Well, it's, it's really easy to collect the classics. I mean, it's not very complicated. It's just some of them are very expensive. But really, if you have an unlimited budget and the stuff becomes available, it's very easy. The praxis are complicated. There is a lot of detail. I was just, uh, there's an article in the current issue of the U.S. Stamp Society uh, publication on... Uh, on the 10 cent coil, which is very rare, um, uh, Prexy. I mean, that's, that's a really rare Prexy, but they're talking about how a lot of the coils are really rare. I was just emailing with Steve Taylor about this subject this morning about no one thinks about how rare some of these coils are like the one and a half cent coil. You just, think that you must find those in the dime box, but you really don't, not, not properly used on cover. So it's complicated. There, there's a lot of rates and situations. I mean, who'd ever heard, heard of a consignee cover? Have you heard of a consignee cover? There's a rate for this. This is when you were a ship was taking a, a load of merchandise and there was a, a, a letter with the thing and it's stamp consigning i mean it's just interesting there's just mm -hmm. lots and lots of really interesting stuff about praxis and a lot of great collections you can study that are copies are available so um and, and then in the south atlantic that redefines complicated during world war ii the the mail that went from the u.s through the southern atlantic and in through africa and out to the china I mean, a lot of people don't know that the U.S. was providing resources to China. China had hundreds of thousands of Japanese troops they were holding off. And if those, if, if they'd overrun China, these troops would have headed to the Pacific. I mean, it could have, people know, some people have heard about the Himalayas going over the hump with these airplanes. But the real story is, fascinating and the covers are fascinating the rates kept changing um so anyway i find this stuff much harder mm. i mean and and a great classic cover it's it's going to make itself known you're going to see it in auction everybody's going to know 
but I'm, I'm sure that some of the great Prexy covers have gone unidentified and unappreciated for decades. A, a small yeah. group. So one thing is Prexies don't appear in auctions because in general, even though they may be uncommon, they don't sell for that much. So I've been really pressing one of my friends in the auction business to let's do a Prexy auction. Let's, let's really, uh, I mean, cause I, I have like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of covers that are probably not going to be in my exhibit to get back in there. And as a hobby, to grow the hobby, you need to have more entry level. You can't expect to find people like Bill Gross who can just give Charles a, basically a blank check to, to build. He built a great collection. I still think his exhibit was really amazing. Um, the one that didn't win in Australia, didn't win in, in Brazil or South America. Um, he, he had a great exhibit. But, um, I mean, it took five, what, five sales of just to sell his U.S. stuff. Yeah. Right? And, and his English and all these collections. It's too you, bad he wasn't more involved. You know, he could have shown up a few times. I think it would have made a big difference. <laughs> yeah. You talk about how uh, judging has changed and how the there certainly used to be, um, uh, let's say, more respect given to a classic exhibit. Um, as exhibiting becomes more about storytelling and as um, you know, uh, uh, opinions towards exhibiting change. Do you think there's a shot? And I know there's been some controversy with the uh, George Brett Cup being sort of a consolation prize for the 20th century exhibit. Do you think there's a chance of a Prexy exhibit or anything else from that era uh, ever winning CFC? Do you think that uh, the pendulum will ever swing that far into the 20th century's direction? Yeah, I think that 20th century exhibit will win the CFC. I do. I mean, it, it's no doubt. I was actually involved in the original discussions to start the Brett Cup. It was the interest of a few people were off for a weekend to talk about stuff. And, um, I don't think it's a substitute, though, for the CFC. I, I really don't. But um, the... The exhibit, uh, the Prexy exhibit that Rumsey sold mm -hmm. recently, um, I mean, that large lot was an amazing collection in itself. I mean, um, I'm not sure that they exactly identified the best pieces to sell individually, but um, I think the collections like that will continue to do well. It's a difficult issue because the classics are really cool and I would think would draw people. They want people to be showing classic exhibits. Some people have quit exhibiting because they didn't like the way the, the judging went. The judging has changed. I mean, what people, they're really much more, um, well, like the story, the idea of a story. You know, I have a hard time getting excited about that. I, I mean, a lot of the stuff, there isn't a story. There's, I mean, it's not a real story on either any of my exhibits, it's just, except maybe the, the 
stuff I'm working on with the South Atlantic. But the more I learn, the more I realize that it's it's just I still don't have it right. I mean, it's it's pretty. And there's debate. You, know. you ever read Ken Lawrence's piece on the Fam Twenty Two? It's a it's an amazing document. But uh, you know, there's all these societies that study this stuff. That cancel the cancel the um, I'm sorry, the census censors and all this. I mean, it's a very complex, and I can't imagine why that area couldn't be just as successful as the classic U.S. Um, I, I really can't imagine why it wouldn't be. It'll almost allow more people into uh, competitive exhibiting if they don't have the, uh, you know, you talk about the, the prexy coils being rare and, and the uh, everything else, but it almost allows other people who don't necessarily have the budget for massive, massive, just like you said, write a blank check to compete and uh, alongside people who can. Exactly. I should have said that. I mean, the, the real goal here is to get more people exhibiting and you can't do it if you can't afford this stuff. So, so while proxies are rare, I mean, for a Prexy cover to go for 5K or 6K. Yeah. The only ones I know of that have sold like that are the covers on the, the Pan Am flight to Hawaii the, on December 7th. It was, you know, outside of Hawaii. They diverted it to Kona. Those covers. But they're actually a lot, th- things a lot rarer than that. But they're not as popular. Mm. But there's also some people who you think of as real classic collectors that, that do collect 20th century stuff, World War II, and people you wouldn't think of. Even when A we, lot we, of people don't know I'd collect this stuff. And Wade was one of the first people we spoke to, and he mm-hmm. obviously has his liberties and everything that he uh, played around in. So it, 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 do you find... Um, uh, that it almost reminds you of why you started collecting in the first place when you have something new and fresh. And, you know, when, when you're collecting the classics, uh, you know, there, there's been so much research done on the 47, so much research done on the 51s. It must feel like at times there's nothing new to learn or uncover. Whereas when you're dealing with the fam flights and, you know, World War II interruptions of mail, it, it, does that, um, you know, sort of... Uh, give you that same rush that, that first got you collecting stamps in the first place? For sure. And even more, I mean, there's some really interesting stuff that hasn't been totally sorted through. And, and people get in these arguments about what FAM 22 is. And, and I'm not sure that some of these arguments are really that differentiated in what they're trying to say. It's a, it's more of a approach to the discussing it, but clearly you know, flights went through Miami, but they also came out of New York. There were, there's, I, I believe, 11, 11 routes that were carried out in the Atlantic, Southern and Middle Atlantic. Um, these flying boats would go down to Brazil and then go back and forth for maybe five trips to Africa, carrying mail and supplies, and then go back to Baltimore where the engines had to be rebuilt. Hmm. It's, it's really sad there are no, none of these planes left. 
I, I think that would be much, I'd much rather fly across the Atlantic in a, um, one of those flying boats than I would take, say, the Queen Elizabeth or something. I, you know, I, I think that would have been, probably would have been rough. They didn't fly that high and they didn't go that fast. I mean, they, it was just a different world. So there's a lot to learn, but this isn't true in so many 20th century areas. I mean, look at the coils and the amount of work that's gone into understanding the coils. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a, a, a really amazing area. Um, the early U.S. coils. Um, it, it seems like there's still so much waiting to be done. You've got a lot of the early issues are plated. All of the rates are known. All of the, uh, you know, it, it seems like that work was pioneered decades ago, and now it's fun to find segments of the hobby that are more or less completely untapped still. Yeah. So, so you right. say there's there's no auctions selling Prexies in the in the kind of way that you'd like to buy. Where are you finding the items for your exhibit that you're building? There's a few dealers who specialize, have specialized in it. Um, and then Rumsey occasionally has them. Uh, Treple sometimes sells a Prexy or two. Um, but dealers around the country yeah. have them. But it's been a very close-knit group of people um, where I think as more exposure, the more people... Cl- could collect them. I don't think we can convert everyone to be a collector, but certainly in the forties, there was a bigger percentage of the population collecting and they were mostly men. So, you know, now we've doubled the number of potential people because there, there just weren't as many women collecting. There still aren't as many, but a society is just fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. Hey, what do you think? Uh, this seems like kind of a large, multifaceted question, but what do you think philately needs to to get more people involved? Today, there's so many options that we have to choose from. When I was growing up, there were four kids. We didn't have a television until second or grade, I think. My father traveled extensively i mean when we were in new york he covered all of south america he went to cuba all the time i mean in those days that was like a trip i mean you didn't have a cell phone you didn't have a wi-fi connection on the airplane i mean it was a real trip and so there was less things to do so more people were into collecting my son is now 25, but he was he was never really a collector, but he really he did get into Pokemon cards and stuff like that. Um, but uh, I don't think there's just a magic answer. I think there'll yeah. always though be a group of people who enjoy collecting. You're not going to probably see I don't see it as an investment, even in this really rare classic stuff. But if you play golf, Let's say you're a golfer, and, you, and then after 40, 50 years of golfing, you're not going to sell that. <laughs> it's a sunk <laughs> cost yeah. of all that. And, and you got great enjoyment from it. Mm-hmm. 
but in collecting there's great enjoyment plus there is some residual value so you you know it's not it's yeah getting anything back is better than right yeah i guess it is one of the few hobbies that 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 gives you some monetary uh compensation for your time as well yeah it's not a i again i don't think people unless they're really lucky are going to make money a good friend of mine here that lives here called a couple of weeks ago. His father's had been a collector, and I get some of these calls. I'm sure you do too, and you're like, it's not worth anything. But he said, well, he said, but he, you know, he did he did exhibit at Cleveland, and I was like, oh, well, <laughs> then you really should get. Some, can you you know send me some scans? And he he had an exhibit of Colombian rates so they were low value they were not dollar value you know high mm-hmm. values uncovered but they were nice stuff and uh i'm sure he spent more than he's gonna get but his, his father had passed away and they're trying to decide what to do with all this stuff interestingly the other brother called the aps and said what do you recommend and they actually gave him names of real dealers <laughs> to go look at it but uh so the enjoyment of it is is hard to to monetize what that is but economically it's not a very expensive hobby Mm. whether you are spending you know five hundred dollars a month is i guess for a lot of people that'd still be a lot of money but if you're spending that or even three hundred dollars or two hundred dollars a month you can build a meaningful collection and learn a lot along the way. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes the hobby interesting. And there are really interesting people in the hobby. They're not like some of my friends think, oh, they must be really weirdos. I said, no, it's some just pretty much a cross section of the of the country. Yeah. yeah the learning part is 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 massive because you go down these huge rabbit holes of information that, that one stamp leads you to another, leads you to another topic. And it's just, I feel like a lot of people are, are sharing information about the, the stamps that they, that they buy or collect as well as just looking uh, for, for enjoyment out of the, the hobby in general. They, they get as much, much out of sharing it with other people as they do as just collecting for themselves. I think that's I think that's true, but I certainly have uh, have enjoyed it, and we've been able to go to a lot of great places. I usually get to go alone to some of these U.S. shows, or, um, but not to the. I mean the, the the stuff in Europe and and the Monte Carlo Club Monte Carlo is really yeah. I mean that that's like almost nothing to do with Salah. It's just a really good time. <laughs> well, we're we're keeping our fingers crossed for Westpex next year. Uh, yeah. It'll be be good to see you again after uh, after all this, and that's always such a great show to begin with. So it'll uh, you know feel even better after such a long you know uh, absence. Will certainly make the heart grow fonder with that show. <laughs> well, it, it is a lot of things. A lot of people you just don't see. I think the people you're close to, you keep in touch with during the pandemic. But there's so many people you're not keeping in touch with. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know right now what I think about whether we can do a show in April or not. 
because we're not going to do a show where we have table space six feet apart. We have one person per table. We can't do that at West Pest. Um, what do you we usual... could require masks. We could yeah. require temperature checks. But I don't think we can control how many people get to go in. and Just yeah. wouldn't work. What are your usual uh, dealer numbers and, and attendee numbers for Westpex? We get about between 65 and 70 dealers. Um, I don't know what the, actually, I don't know the attendance numbers. I don't, mm -hmm. it's not my area. But yeah. uh, we're, we would have been full this last April. We, we had, you know, we had it all sold and paid for and ready to go. We haven't, I haven't sent out the bills yet for this year or the next year, the coming show, because I don't want to have to go through the refund and, and stuff. We have been keeping track. I, I think we have 60 dealers that said they definitely want to come to Westpex when the next Westpex. So that alone is a pretty big show. I don't know right. what they get in Cleveland or Napex or stuff, but. I worry about the dealers. I mean, this is so tough. If you're not an internet dealer, I don't know how they've been surviving. Yeah, I guess the, the email lists and, and the, the Dana at the ASDA has been working pretty hard to try and get as many people online as possible. But Right, uh, that's you know, she's done a good job of that. Yeah. It's a crazy world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, Gordon, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. This has been... Uh, this has been fantastic. Um, I didn't know about your own personal history of collecting. Obviously, I know the the exhibits and whatnot, but it, it, it's it's great to hear your uh, your personal side of the story as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I uh, I love I love the people I've uh, I associate with in the hobby, and happy to do anything I can. Anyway, <laughs> you guys take care. Stay safe. This yeah, is the yeah. time to really encourage your friends to stay really safe mm -hmm. absolutely Enjoy the holiday and you too and then hopefully uh hopefully we see you uh at some point in the in the near future i'll be at the next show that a reasonable show that actually happens so yeah i'll see you there thanks for thank including you so me. much it's very good thanks. yeah absolutely thank you gordon thank you. okay bye bye I thought that was great. I, I miss seeing Gordon in shows. I don't believe you've ever met him, so that must have been interesting nope. for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I look forward to going to the next show where he's exhibiting to see the, you, the collection I, I, you talked about. I really want to see this Prexy exhibit. Again, right. I'm you know, familiar with his, his more classic material, but to see the Prexies he's been putting together should be um, a real showstopper. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, I'm interested to see if he gets that auction house that he's been poking to do a, a prex, oh, prexy, prexy catalog auction. would be yeah. a lot of fun um yeah. i think that would give them some i don't want to say legitimacy because they're legitimate obviously but give them some some um clout in the hobby right right yeah it, i'm looking forward to it. It, it seeing it i'm i'm assuming it's mostly commercially used covers uh no Tough stuff to find yeah it, and I, uh, I do see the the examples that he talked about selling. Some when they sell these covers for five thousand dollars, they always make the cover a lens. Yeah, uh, the, well, the I think it's so weird for there to be there to be modern, yeah, modern in the hobby in, yeah. in philatelic terms. It's weird for that stuff to be bringing big prices like that. So I, I think yeah. it's fun for lens to highlight that. 
Um, Cause it, you know, it's stuff that looks like you could have it in your collection. Yeah. I always get bringing. super nervous because I, I look at the cover and I'm like, Oh, did I see three of those last week? And of course I probably didn't, but, <laughs> but it, they look so regular, you know? Exactly. No, I, I think that's what makes Prexies fun. You know, most people in the hobby probably remember Prexies, you know, mm-hmm. they were phased out with the liberties in the fifties, but they kind of lingered on, you know, anybody growing up in the forties and fifties, that was what you used. Yeah. Um, and I think that's gotta be cool for people to, to be reminded of that. Right. They're seeing stamps that, that they used as postage as kids. sell. they're seeing for... stamp. I was going to say, they're seeing, you know, things they could have bought at the post office, bringing, right. um, you know, $1,500. It's right. got to. Yeah. And, and of course there's other examples of that too. Like the, the lantern issue where, um, Bill Bergstrom was just talking right. about, you know, the not CIA everyone could buy them upside down. No, no, they could not. High value prexies on commercially used mail. Anyone could have made. You could do that. Yeah. That's well, the back I, to the future movie. I want to see where somebody builds a time machine. Yeah. Goes and creates a solo franking $5 prexy cover. Mm-hmm. Mails it to themselves in the year 2020. Yeah. They just pull open the drawer. Great Scott. This would like the... be the lowest grossing movie of all time. <laughs> no, I mean, if you mail enough of the covers, it could be pretty high grossing. You could just sell the covers. Or you could for... just get the the uh, sports yearbook with all the scores in it. Yeah, but where's the fun in that? Sports? I mean, we're talking about stamps here. Have you seen Back to the Future, though? <laughs> yeah. Because I just described yeah. the plot of the movie. <laughs> right, yeah. But we're on to um, something else now. We're no, on to our the, next episode. Right. That's a good segue there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're on to our next episode where we are going to be talking to Mr. Chris Green. Yeah. Of, uh, of, of Chris Green Stamps. Of Chris Green Stamps and yeah. of Spink USA. Yep. Um, Chris is uh, Chris is a great guy. Someone I really enjoy seeing in shows. He's mm-hmm. um, you know one of the younger professionals in the hobby, which is which is cool. He's he's like one of us. Yeah. Um, and and I think he'll be great to talk to. I I'm excited. I'm looking forward to. I'm excited for all of them. But I'm looking forward to this specifically because he's got a retail. What episodes store. have you not been excited for? <laughs> I think just, just the name. ones where it's just me and you. Why don't you name names? <laughs> I'm really excited for this upcoming episode. Yeah. I want to hear the episode. No, uh, he does have a retail store, and yeah. he's he's you know he he's it's a new newish retail store. It's you mm-hmm. know what I mean. It's not somebody who's been doing this for right decades and decades it's somebody again like our generation who is um is is trying to bring that aspect of the hobby back so i think that'll be really really neat to talk to him yeah i think it's going to be incredible to hear his his story of of his decision to open a retail store it's in ottawa right yes yeah in in downtown ottawa and and his experience and and what he's been going through with the virus because it's not just the retail store he has an online store as well Yep. So, we, how he's kind of juggling all those uh, hats. Yeah. Well, you can hear that episode <laughs> and every episode on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Podbean, all the different podcast services to pick up yep. our RSS feed. Uh, we have a website that is flatlypodcast.com. We have an email that is flatlypodcast at gmail.com. That's true. We love feedback. We love... Uh, I, I reactivated my Twitter. I noticed. Um, I don't remember my handle, but if you follow Michael, uh, you can see I retweet everything you tweet. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'll, really just, I'll just retweet the things that you've retweeted of mine so that people, can, people see can find handle. us. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get more involved philatelically on Twitter. So mm-hmm. well, doesn't I everyone? think that's usually, that's why Twitter, that's, the, was, yeah, that's why that's the dream. Jack, Jack made it. Is Jack? Yep. No, Jack. Jack Dorsey. Yep. I'm really flexing my uh, technology here. Well, we just um, got off the phone with phone with Gordon. You zoom with, so. with a very, very important in the tech world. So, right. um, Follow Michael on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, next time I say that, I will know my handle so that it will be easier to follow me. Right. Well, I'll put it in the in the link in bio. Uh, Twitter link in bio. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we. I, I want. I, I like communicating with people. I want to. Mm-hmm. I want to get to know more people in the hobby. I, yeah. I know my. I know the people I know. Yeah. But I want to know more people. Well, that's eloquent. that's a lot of where our our guests have come from too. Because I admittedly, I think in the, his episode, I even admitted that I, I'd never met um, Gary Lowe before. I just you've I never met one. a single one of our guests. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and Daisy Todd from last week, I'd never met her. I just uh, found found her on on Twitter. But well, um, tweet us, email us, yep. Instagram us. Yep. Uh, uh, no, those, those are all the things. Yeah. You can yeah you uh, can mail us letters at flatly yeah. podcast uh, street dot com. <laughs> We're gonna cut I don't that joke. Where, I don't know where this is going. Yeah. So on that note, I will mm-hmm. say until next time. Yeah, absolutely. Fun, and uh, we'll we'll chat again real soon. All right. See ya. Thanks, Michael.